Hi, welcome to the Old Growth Podcast. My name is Julia. I'm here with Eric. This is our second episode of this podcast, and today we'll, we will be discussing why we became interested in science during childhood and how science and policy work together. Yeah, so uh, I know I started my interest in science with like just going to the library and picking up different books and everything. Uh, did you like kind of have any particular interests when you were a kid or was it kind of just everything? Um, just everything. I've always had a lot of interest in animals and in plants. So I remember going to the zoo a lot as a child and I really loved the polar bears. I still love polar bears and always wanting to read about them and look at pictures and observe animals. Um, just go on hikes. Did you watch any like science TV shows? Did you watch Bill Nye? I never watched Bill Nye, but I watched a lot of Steve Irwin, the Crocodile Hunter, and I watched a lot of I just watched a lot of Animal Planet back when it used to just actually be animals instead of <laughs> it's humans a TV doing whatever. Um, and my mother has always been a real big gardener, more flower gardens than vegetable gardens. But she always, when I was a kid, she would teach me about the different plant names. So like, I was always following her around in the garden, and I used to live on lake erie and we had a waterfall that we would always walk to and i would spend lots of time at the beach so always interested in nature did those interests translate into decisions in school for like projects and stuff or did you t take classes did you did that push your interest in high school for like uh, more bio biology classes and stuff like that yeah i definitely read a lot of articles online about science like when I was in junior high and high school I remember deciding in seventh grade that I wanted to do environmental science when I went to college um, so I, <laughs> I decided a long time ago that the environment was where my interest lied um, but I took AP bio and then I just always uh, was interested in it I don't know yeah I, I've my interest in science kind of came from like just books when I was little a mm -hmm. lot there I remember going to the library and always checking out uh like a some type of kids book to some type of subject or something or there'd be a book on like look at these really weird creatures that live in the ocean or something like that um and books about lasers and stuff I loved <laughs> lasers when I was little uh did your parents or your siblings at all help foster that well I don't I don't I would say no probably they kind of they let me do whatever like interests i wanted but the, i think the interest was pretty independent with me just liking that stuff and thinking it was cool mm -hmm. um and then i'd always come up with like crazy ideas of how to do things and that uh, when it, once i was in uh uh high school early high school and there were like stuff on this science channel and things like that with uh what's the world going to look like in 50 years? Mm -hmm. Like those kind of shows. Um, those really inspired me to like get into engineering and stuff and start the and applied science. Um, so I kind of built from that. Um, and then when I got into college, that all got tossed up because I started liking the newspaper and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everything got messed up then. <laughs> yeah. So like it all started getting meshed together with enjoying mm -hmm art stuff because i started getting a photography in high school too so i started meshing oh, yeah. art and science together um but I, I i noticed with a lot of people though because i remember talking to my friends about all these cool science things and 
liking science books and looking into stuff. Um, but then once they get into high school, it's just kind of like starts to fall off for some people. They start disliking science. They start disliking math. Yeah. I think too, it's part of childhood is you're so amazed by everything that science is really interesting. And I think, uh, like in my classes now in college, I still get to have that childhood, like amazement and wondering about the world. So I guess some people just lose that or find another outlet for that. But that, that enjoyment of like figuring something out for the first mm-hmm. time or discovering something for the first time. Yeah. I can see how that wonder kind of like dwanes once you get mm-hmm. older. Yeah. Cause uh, and the, the real world sets in. Yeah. And, and the it. things that you're <laughs> discovering are like taxes and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not as exciting as starfish. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But. Well, I think, um, is there anything in particular we want to talk about that? Is there any points? Um, well, I have a niece and a nephew, and my niece is five, and my nephew will be four in uh, September, I mean. And uh, I really see it with them, how, like, my niece, she loves butterflies, and she'll just chase them. And I'm like, do you know what that's called? And she's like, what? <laughs> so I'll teach her, like, butterfly names and plant names. And, like, my cousin's son, who's... uh three i was working in the garden with him when i went to visit them in philadelphia and asa was just amazed by the plants and we found some baby snakes hiding in the garden as we cleared it out and it's just i don't know it's it's fun working with children because you can really renew your own sense of like wow this is our world's amazing like so that's a good point um did you ever have a fascination with dinosaurs when you were little? Do you, are either of them fascinated with dinosaurs? I, I never did, but my niece and my nephew, because my sister-in-law really loves dinosaurs. My niece, yeah, my niece and my nephew both love dinosaurs. They have, like, dinosaur book bags. and Well, my niece is more into princesses now than dinosaurs, but for a long time, yeah. <laughs> we, I, Whenever we had the uh, dinosaur exhibit up at the uh, Trek, I, it was always cool to see kids who, there were kids that came in who knew the dinosaur names better than <laughs> a lot of the adults that came through. That's um, Because they'd come in and have little speakers come in from Mercyhurst and talk and mm-hmm. say, you know, talk about, like, you know, what's this and that. And I remember seeing like this little, she's like maybe eight year old girl answered every single question before the guy could even <laughs> wow. like get it halfway out. And I was That's so amazing. impressed. And I just kind of like. I really hope that that carries on later that they still yeah. enjoy that stuff and keep following that stuff like that. Yeah, and I think too once you get older you realize that you need to make money and people don't necessarily see science as a money-making profession. Um which we could talk about that all day whether or not it really is. Yeah, so that's something I think we definitely need to talk about with our, you know, science and the uh motivations Mm -hmm. for being a scientist and everything yeah do you want to take a quick break sure go eat some chili chili i have so many tabs open (laughs) i mean that kind of all ends up going over the same thing with that there's a inherent difference between how science approaches problems and how policymakers approach problems Mm -hmm. so in science i think the nature article brings up a really good point of it um if you are 
trying to figure out how to do something the best way or right. Uh, if you're doing it like through a science base, you just do a study, calculate all the variables and mm-hmm. say, well, this one ends up being the right way to do it. So we'll do it that way. But policy making, you have constituents to consider. So mm-hmm. if someone will tell you, do you, you know, they'll ask, like, do you care about me and my issues? And then I'll decide if, like, you can, if I'll vote for you to do it my, do it the way that I want or something. So it doesn't take into consideration, you know, all the different variables and everything. Plus, policy tends to be more economically based. Mm-hmm. Uh, and things like air quality and stuff don't really get the monetary value that, like, adding 50 jobs will. Yeah, or at least in the short term, which is usually how things are. Yeah, yeah, Looked especially as short, short term, term. long term. Yeah. Um, so there's this inherent challenge by these differences of scale, differences of priorities, differences of motivations um, that all kind of go into the issues between using science in politics mm-hmm. and policy making. Um, so I guess I'll just talk briefly. We have a couple of articles linked about this. Um, one is from Nature, and the other one is from NCBI. That's it's a research article. Research article. Um, so the Nature article talked a little bit about what happened during some of the previous government shutdowns and how that affected scientists and their research. In some cases, research had to stop. Um, some of them they had to worry about being able to run for very long, and they fell smack into the issue between motivations and the ones like the scientists are trying to discover new things, find, get data, create research. And while the government side of it's just trying to run the country, Mm -hmm. keep money moving. Um, And those things don't coincide very well often. (laughs) Um, So it can be a particular issue. And they showed a couple of cases where, you know, if some research can only be done for a certain week out of the year, and outside of that, you're, they're going to have to wait a whole other year before they can do it again. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, there's an issue with funding and cash flow, all of a sudden, the whole year that they spent preparing to do this for this one week is suddenly lost. So there's all of a sudden yeah. this huge lost cost issue. Um, and, and that's another one of the challenges that you can have with, like, trying to make science and policy mesh together yeah and two especially when i worked in the research lab doing the e coli testing it's important for policymakers to understand what is feasible like certain you can only run a certain number of samples you can only you because you have to pay your employees so you have to think about two are what we're requiring for these people to do i'm just gonna use the epa as an example for like quality water quality testing or what we are requiring, is that actually realistic um, in the field? And that's something to consider, too. Because even if your research points to, like, this is the best way to move forward, how do you actually do that? And is it possible? So Yeah. And um, it, it kind of goes back to also the issue with being able to communicate that mm-hmm. with all the parties involved. Um, so, you know, a scientist might be able to say, 
I need to do this for this research. Otherwise, this research like won't be valuable or anything. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from uh, like a policy policymaker standpoint, they're going to look at things just like you're costing me this much money. What am I getting out of it? It's really hard mm-hmm. to like to determine values like that numerically sometimes. Yeah. Um, and two certain groups of people have more influence than others based on the amount of money that they hold, like special interest groups. Certain groups can lobby for what they want because they have more power financially. So there's a whole bunch of forces working on all of these issues, especially when you get to the policy writing and implementation in government. So, Yeah, and like their interests are going to be different. It's it's a similar thing to having publicly funded uh, research versus privately funded research. Um in general, when you have publicly funded research, it's usually not trying to swing one way or another. When you have privately funded research, sometimes, like, if you don't get the result that your funder wants, they'll mm-hmm. stop funding you. Um, so that can that can become a challenge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where that comes into, like, issues with, you know, politics and government, you know, if you happen to have... A, a certain politician who's trying to like get his way done to for his constituents. If you're trying to fund research for something to solve a problem and it's showing up saying that the way that you want to do it isn't going to work, mm-hmm. you know, you might just choose to not listen to them or, you know, cut their funding or retaliate against them or something. And, uh, th- those are all end up being complications. Um, so uh, what in particular did you find interesting about the uh, science driving child health policies? Um, so I didn't, I can't access the full article necessarily, but um, this is an article or like a research paper published in 2014 in a public health journal about how it's called science as an early driver of policy, child labor reform in the early progressive era. 1870 to 1900 so this is like when child labor was still a thing and people pushed uh, child labor should be legal which we now see with all the welfare child welfare standards um so it just talked about how like economically people wanted children to work but how children developmentally shouldn't be subjected to this sort of treatment. So, uh, let me see if I can find it. So, there was an increased understanding from physicians, toxicologists, factory inspectors, sociologists, and psychologists that children, not only infancy, um, was a biologically vulnerable period of life and trace how progressive reformers use this knowledge effectively to advocate change. So, that was interesting how it brought together all these different disciplines to create change that we've seen has a lasting impact on our society and it's something we take for granted nowadays too Mm -hmm. you wouldn't think of like no one would think about nowadays like oh you're eight now go get to work yeah um or at least not in our country yeah um we we can see the benefits of being able to have you know it focused on like education for kids Mm -hmm. at that age and everything and that actually um points really well into the other link I have, if you don't have anything else on that, 
um, with about using science as evidence in public policy. Um, this is from the National Academies of Science, Engineering, Medicine. Um, and this kind of as a summary talks about the use of science and policy and how it changed dramatically after World War II. So post-World War II, we were very science-heavy in everything we were doing. So um, we wanted to do studies in all sorts of different fields and everything, particularly in the physical sciences, um, but also starting to develop in the social sciences and choosing how what's the best way to govern people, what's able to get the most bang for our buck for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these things drove policies like... Uh, the modern day versions of welfare and everything. Um, so I, I find it interesting how it also points later on about there being that systematic difference between uh, research and science and trying to create effective policy from that mm-hmm. and considering all the different constituents and everything in the same case. Um and and that's kind of like a theme that I see through a lot of these articles is that there's just a really, really difficult to cross divide between uh, taking that research and applying it to mm-hmm. policy. And it's something that has probably not really been done very well so far, but it's uh, had been applied pretty effectively um, in the 50s and 60s. But now we're starting to find it more difficult again. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's just a bit of a societal change that people are more skeptical of everything now, or mm-hmm. if that's just um, a result of the type of political cl- climate, whether that's more corruption or anything or money in politics. I would think part of it is like example with cigarette smoking, people smoke cigarettes for years and years and years. And then suddenly they're told it's bad for you. So I think people are like, Oh, well this is what they say now, but in 10 years they're going to tell me something different. And, like, with the, there was, like, the Ice Age thing in, like, the 70s and 80s, how they were, like, thought there was going to be another Ice Age, and that didn't happen. So, people were like, oh, well, you said this, but that never happened. So, obviously, you're wrong. Yeah. And it's it's sometimes hard with stuff like that, too, because the Mm -hmm. policy lags so far behind what the current, you know, knowledge might be. Yeah. Um, So, like, I mean, after we discovered smoking was bad it was years before like policy got put into place mm-hmm. it wasn't even until like i was a teenager where they started to really ban it in like restaurants and places and public places oh yeah and like at amusement parks they now had like the smoking areas because um, they realized that it's not only a hazard to your health but other people's health so that's really yeah interesting and, and um and so that was done like that stuff was supported through research of you know like lung cancer and everything or mm-hmm. what are the causes of this well it seems to be smoking so we're going to tell everyone to quit smoking so much and they tried a whole bunch of different ways i remember did you have to the just say no program mm-hmm. when you were yep. in school and everything yep. um i mean that was just pounded into our heads when we were kids like to not smoke don't do drugs and everything it was it mm-hmm. was crazy how much it happened um and I remember when I was a kid, actually, my, both my parents smoked. And it was me mm-hmm. and my sister who convinced them not to because we hounded them. We we <laughs> learned at school, school like, yeah. oh, the smoking's bad for you. Then we go home and tell our parents, you shouldn't do that. That's bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> and both of them actually ended up quitting from it. Uh, but, you, you know, that's like we, we knew it was bad back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. 
So that's like 40 years or so to like yeah, finally catch up to like Bannigan. With, the, with the companies has so much influence and people didn't want to believe it. And then you had, yeah, it's a whole Or thing. like so there's people also who think like, well, I don't think the government should tell me I can't smoke. But it's like mm-hmm. it's, it got to the point where it's not just affecting you. It's affecting everyone around your you. Children, it's costing your... so much in medical expenses yeah, and everything. Right. And yeah. so like society finally decided this is not worth it. Mm-hmm. We're going to start banning it. Um, oh, well, I think an interesting quote in this, um, I guess it's kind of, it's a long article or a short a chapter of a book. Um, it says, also, at least in a democracy, political leaders are obliged to give reasons for their policy choices. So I think that's a really, like, distinct difference between, like, even different forms of government, how we say that we have this democracy. So, like, people should have reasoning behind what they do in making laws so and and the best place for that to come from i think is from you know evidence Mm -hmm. peer review like we talked about last time it it kind of it seems like at first like it should go hand in hand Mm -hmm. but it's because there's all these other factors that come into it because all these other pressures from different sources yeah and so i this will start kind of jumping ahead a little bit into like uh scientists starting to run for office which i I know we weren't planning running in this thing but just kind of naturally went this way Mm -hmm. but um the atlantic article that you have here from the scientists are starting to run for office they ran into the issues with uh you know scientists tend to not make good politicians because they don't know how like that works and everything Mm -hmm. um so having to bring up these organizations i think they called it 314 um to uh teach scientists how to be politicians and how to deal with politics and everything Mm -hmm. um and starting to try and bridge that gap between being a scientist and being able to apply that towards policy making yeah because it's a whole new ball game it's a whole different profession basically yeah and they're they're not even just dealing with you know the big thing is money it's all it's very money driven Mm -hmm. um whereas you know a scientist you, you don't we were discussing this earlier you don't usually try to become a scientist because you want to make lots of money mm-hmm. that's that's not why a lot of people get into it it's usually a passion thing mm-hmm. um uh, is there anything in particular you wanted to go over about this article i just think it's interesting how like in canada they have people who are experts in their field who do different things like a doctor is in charge of the health the department of health whatever it's called in canada and i just think that's significantly different than it is in the united states at least during this current administration we don't have people who are experts in their field running these agencies in these and in office so yeah i and i think probably the one of the biggest examples there would probably be the epa Mm -hmm. where we you know instead of having you know environmental scientists or something we have a lobbyist yeah (laughs) so it's and that's kind of backtracking on this push to try and like get them to work in tandem um because again we have different constituents involved there's different money involved there Mm -hmm. Uh, you know if the epa is not letting you drill somewhere and your company has lots of money you'll do something to try and keep the epa from letting you doing that yeah Um, i think that's too one of the things we really saw during the 2016 election and debatably in a reason why Donald Trump was elected is that people don't want these career politicians anymore. They want people who are quote unquote outsiders. 
And I think that's an edge that people that scientists have that they aren't these career politicians. They have unique experiences. And I guess we'll have to see in the November election, the midterms, if anything, if that shifts at all. And I'm not really sure how many scientists are running. I know a lot more women are running um, and more minorities are running. So it's just breaking. These people are breaking into this white male dominated field. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely positive that we're getting, you know, different people to like move into these positions and everything, Mm -hmm. you know, um, having, you know, just a varied workforce and everything tends to be beneficial and have yeah, different even ideas within, for stuff. Even within companies, they try, it's good to have diversity so that you can make informed and the best decision for all parties involved. Yeah. So, so, so Julia, how did scientists start wanting to get into public policy and everything? And why, why are they marching? Well, here, let me see what... Um, well, there's an article from Nature. Let me figure out which tab. It's... Yeah, there we go. So now we're going to get more into the current political climate stuff. <laughs> so uh, there's an editorial in the in um, the journal Nature, which is a very respected uh, science journal, and it this is published the the morning or the day that we all found out Donald Trump was to be our next president, and so this article which we'll put on the website, just talks about how throughout his campaign, Trump would uh, say things that weren't correct or he would, like, say, like, let's see if I can find an example. Like, he said things about vaccinations causing autism, which we know that the peer-reviewed literature does not support that. Um, And so how all these people who are experts in their field and like work with science and understand how the process works, how they see this man who embodies like why we're like, why we have this system so that these kind of things aren't spewed and misinformation isn't spread, how they saw that happening and how this has caused people, whether they're scientists or not to become more politically active. So in response to that, we had the March for Science um, in, it was on Earth Day of 2017, so a little over a year ago, and how just Donald Trump, and then after his election, how he appointed Scott Pruitt, who we have seen make dramatic changes to the EPA, which if you're an envi- if you consider yourself an envir- environmentalist, you see that as a negative change. They scrubbed pretty much all the climate change stuff from their website, Um and it just really they changed their their mission from when from the Obama administration which is normal but this was really dramatic and it really uh a lot of scientists see it as being ignorant so i think yeah, that really spurred people it felt very antithetical to what the EPA was mm-hmm. in, envisioned to do yeah even though nixon signed it into uh, yeah it, being it's a very too. very kind of disturbing turn of events um and on and it was a pretty immediate backlash from quite a Mm -hmm. few people 
even famously, it was I think it was the National Park Service. Was yeah, it their Twitter. Yeah, they rebelled. <laughs> they rebelled and started to you know posting about climate change and everything, and then we got the alternative park service yeah <laughs> which i believe is still running yeah um to put this push back to more to, to refocus onto science-based uh you know research and applying that into our public thought and everything um and i that, that was also something i found personally just quite hilarious is watching you know the range yeah the rebellion of <laughs> the, the the online social service. media rebellion but yeah, and I, I recall the whole March for Science thing all coming together. And mm-hmm. I, I think the Facebook group was the first thing I saw with it. And I actually ended up joining it when they first started. Um, and they're still posting stuff to it now. And they have mm-hmm. a summit coming up next weekend on the, I think, oh, really? actually. Yeah, the Saturday. No, in yeah, Chicago. Oh, I was, like, oh it's, I was like, oh, I missed out on this. I need to go. <laughs> um, no, I think it's coming up the Saturday. They're, so they're still... Um, this this movement kept going after it wasn't just like a one weekend thing where they, you know, all shouted and screamed. But mm-hmm. um, it's been an ongoing push to swing back to using evidence and policy making and um, not, you know, bastardizing <laughs> science mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and just making, you know, rampant false claims. There's definitely been a dramatic shift over the past couple of years to this sort of anti-science movement and i think um scientists are starting to try and claw their way back and -hmm. doing so in a way that they haven't traditionally done by like getting their boots dirty actually and then starting to uh run for offices Mm -hmm. which is really cool to see and even like in my um one of my biology classes this past semester my professor who's one of my favorite professors she made sure to emphasize that we as scientists can't be in the ivory tower, as they call it, where you just think of yourself as above what's going on. And like, I have the, I'm an academic. Like you need to be involved on all levels to really see change. And that you can't just isolate yourself from society and from politics because a lot of people don't like politics and like, you don't have to like it, but it's important and I think that has really become clear to a lot more people since the Trump administration began a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I even saw one of our articles pointing out about how um science used to try and be apolitical, but mm-hmm. it, it really can't. Because I mean that's yeah. it's half the reason why we're doing it is because we're trying to learn how to effectively do stuff. So it it can't remain apolitical. So yeah, like last week I went and visited um, the Vermont Law School, which is where I would like to attend, and I went to a class, and um, the professor talked about it, and I found the comic right now, but it's, well, to put it on the website, but it's like a stack of books, and there's people sitting on it, and the researcher at the top says, we study nature, now you go save it to this person at the bottom of the stack, and like, we that that can't. That's not how you do th- change. That's not how you change things. Yeah. So, yeah. I it's, think that's a good illustration of that idea. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we got to, you got to also do it yourself to try. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something I think that'll be a particular challenge too for scientists trying to get into politics and everything. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that, you know, going back to how, you know, a person who's trying to put food on the table does not care 
about environmental mm-hmm. stuff. It's not on their top priority. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to reconcile with that person and understand that they're going to have way different problems mm-hmm. or people who have, you know, one policy decisions for their voting and everything. Yeah. Like cause a lot of people have other causes that they're are the, at the forefront of their mind. So you, I guess you just have to try to appeal to different people in the best way that you can. Yeah. And so that'll be an interesting challenge. I'm, I'm very curious to see which scientists make it and which ones. What what? I mean, we're also curious the ones that don't. What they decide to do afterwards, whether mm-hmm. they decide to go back to their career or if they try and keep going with the politics. Because mm-hmm. um, you know, science is something where once you start it, it's kind of a a lifetime uphill pull to the top you know getting your phd and everything it takes years mm-hmm. um to suddenly abandon that just to try to like you know save the world and run the country or something <laughs> yeah and two like will we see a difference in or are we already seeing difference in what research is being done based on the issues that we have that are currently facing us so so yeah this the story is still being written so i guess we'll see what yeah. happens uh, if you are a scientist and you thought about like joining into politics or anything, or if you're political at all, uh, let us know how you fit that into your life. Do you just post stuff on Facebook or do you go to town meetings or anything or mm-hmm. what do you do? Um, so I think that's, I think that's good pretty much up. all we had to cover. Yeah. If you had to do a, another podcast that wasn't environmental, what would you do it on? I think it'd be fun to just like discuss deep deep topics, but that's like very general. Do you like need to get stoned and then talk about topics? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's bad. That's illegal. Um, I really like the. I listened to a couple episodes of the Harry Potter, um, the Sacred Text podcast. I thought that's really cool. That would be, that would be like a. Obviously, they already made that, but like. <laughs> It'd be cool to do something maybe like music based or literature based. To story te- oh storytelling would be fun. Just get different people to come on and t- tell stories. Would Just be a good put one. the mic in front of Brian Gula. Yeah, <laughs> tell me about your life. Because <laughs> um, one of my friends for her senior project for arts administration, that's what her project was was to, like a storytelling event, and I was watching the live stream before it like derped out, and that that was really cool. What'd you like most about Vermont, actually? I wanted to ask oh, you about that. Yo, yeah. So I went to Vermont last week to visit my aunt and to also visit the law school that I want to go to. So Vermont is super progressive. They have there's solar power everywhere. Like I've never seen so many solar farms in my life. It was crazy. That's cool. And I when I visited the law school, they have composting toilets. Oh, I'm geeking <laughs> out, man. So that was awesome. It's just beautiful. The mountains are beautiful. I looked at the pictures. They were great. Yeah. Like my pictures don't even do it justice. Uh, Like it's amazing. You just drive on the highway, the main highway that goes through Vermont. And it's just like, wow, it's amazing. Um, You have to do a trip up there or something. Yeah. I I love it. I'm really excited. Hopefully they accept me and I can live there. (laughs) Did it feel right? You're just there like, yeah, I need to be. Yeah. I really like it. And it's like um, the law school's in South Royalton. It's in this little town. And so the law school's like in the town, so like the sidewalks are all connected, and like I really like that because where I live now, I'm out like in the country kind of, and there's nothing within walking distance. 
But there, there's like a co-op and um, a few restaurants that aren't too far, but it's still a really small town. So I don't think I would get too distracted because I get distracted really easily. Like the nearest, Ooh, shiny. yeah, like the nearest big stores are like an hour away. Okay. Because <laughs> Burlington's about an hour and a half north of there, and then there's the town where oh, I forget what town it is. Hanover, I think, in New Hampshire, I think is what it's called. That's about an hour um, east, where there's like a mall or something, like a Walmart. How? So. It's my sense of scale is always awful when it comes to these states. Like, how mm-hmm. big is Vermont? Like, how long it's does pretty it take small. To... Okay. Um, I didn't go all the way to the bottom of the state, but the I'd say the law school's um, a little about halfway down the state or so. I don't know. I don't know my Vermont geography super well yet, but it was like an hour. Like Burlington's fairly far north on Lake Champlain, so the law school was like an hour and a half south of there. So it takes about two to three hours to drive up to down top to bottom of the state. I'm I'm gonna guess that I'm gonna, but it took me like I drove across New York State, but I avoided all the tolls. Mm-hmm. It took me like nine hours to drive just across New York State. So New York is huge. Yeah, New York and Pennsylvania are deceptively like wide. Yeah, like New York, like Pennsylvania, you can drive down it within three and a half hours, but driving across it takes like eight hours. Yeah, it's. It's crazy. Let's let me see what Google Maps says. So let's see. This is the bottom of the state. Click there. Directions. Okay. Yeah, about like three and a half hours to go from the top of the state to the bottom of the state. Okay. So, and then it, the state is taller than it is uh it's longer it's more north south than it is east west or yeah east west yeah so yeah pretty it's a fairly small state but they my aunt told me because my aunt has lived there for most of her life she's from pennsylvania Uh, my grandparents live here but she is she's lived there most of her life but anyways she said that you have like recycling you have to recycle and then this summer they're making composting like you have to compost it's the law <laughs> that is awesome and like i st- i uh at the beginning of last week i went to harrisburg the capital of pennsylvania with my internship um to meet with uh politicians and other community members to talk about poverty so i went to the capital there and we had to go through security and everything and i've been to dc in the capital and you have to go through security the vermont um capitol building in montpelier we literally just walked in <laughs> there was no security like i was like okay um are you gonna check my bag even my like, little franklin courthouse has security on it really <laughs> yeah down in franklin yeah there security. was literally, like I, I literally walked into the vermont senate room and the vermont vermont house of representatives room just like walked in like they had a huh. like they had a rope but i, I could have gone <laughs> i could have crawled over the rope i don't think there was any like like, I've been to museums where there's, like, the lasers, and they can tell if you, like, touch okay. something. Except my mom did that once. But <laughs> <laughs> she reached her arm too far into the exhibit, and it got her. But, uh, like, there there was no... I didn't, I didn't see anyone. No. Hmm. Just other tourists. Like... That's cool. That's very accessible, yeah. then. <laughs> but, yeah, it was awesome. And I'm very impressed by the law school. They are the top environmental law program in the country so 
I, th- I hope I'll get in. I think I'll get in based on my I think you will. scores. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Do we do we want to talk about the plastic straw too, or should we save that? Like, well, like, we were we wanted lemonade after our, uh, <laughs> well, okay, so we went to a rib fest, but then we got vegetarian food at rib fest. Yeah. So we got these <laughs> butternut squash tacos. Yeah, they were weird, but I think they, I liked it. It was very different. They had cinnamon toast crunch on <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah, there was tacos with cinnamon toast crunch. Yeah, and butternut squash. It was, it was good, but it was the, it was the weirdest I don't know if I'd get flavors. it again. <laughs> <laughs> but. But then we went on the drinks so and we went and got lemonade. And the guy's like, here's your straws. And we're like, oh, no. <gasps> no, we forgot to not ask for straws. This should have gotten straws. Oh, no. So, and I but he, then the guy was like. He, he like said something. What did he say? I couldn't. Well, he was, he was kind of like something about like, oh, if I did what the doctor told me to do, I would have been dead decades ago. And I was like, That's not the what? same thing. It's <laughs> <laughs> <was> like, not. <laughs> okay. And, well, that's, that, was, that was like a perfect point with it. Like people just. They don't see it. Yeah. Do, like it's, I, it's just you know it's just trying to reduce your personal waste do i need to show you a picture of a turtle with a straw <laughs> on its nose to get my point across uh, apparently but i guess that guy still uses straws thank you for listening the old grove podcast is produced by julia garen and eric die uh, this week's episode was edited by julia Ah, see, it's not me this week. <laughs> and we, we just ate. I didn't eat breakfast this this today either, mm, but I was still okay because we had chili. Yeah, butternut good. squash chili. Why do we keep having butternut squash <laughs> during our theme. podcast days? We this, we should have called it the butter squash. <laughs> the butter squash podcast. The butternut squash. Oh, podcast. that's a really good name too. <laughs> oh well, old girls podcast too late. We'll have to make a different one at some point. In the future. We'll have, a, we'll have a second podcast called the butter the butter squash podcast. The butter the butter not butter not squash just butter squash. Yeah, just butter squash. <laughs> <laughs> All right, is that a wrap then? That's good. I think that's good.